0: deck podcast extended play on the 27 club, an exploration on each member of the club and how their death was contextualized within their life. Today's episode is going to be on legendary uh, blues guitarist and founder of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, who died in 1969. Um, Gral Marcus wrote upon his death... I woke up to hear that Brian Jones was dead, and not more than a ripple of sorrow passed through the room. It was time for it. There was just nothing left for him to do. Become a Rolling Stone and die. And it indicates the reputation of the Rolling Stones in that year. Andrew Lug Oldham, um, their nefarious manager, marketed the Rolling Stones as a grittier, darker, gamier alternative to the relatively clean-cut Beatles back in the late 60s, Um, this was a band that was known in the tabloids and and just in lore for their debauchery and promiscuity and drug use. And uh, a lot of the bands seemed to match that reputation, at least on stage. People like Mick Jagger, like Keith Richards, they were known for it, you know, Mary Faithful. There wasn't a member of the band that seemed to evoke that lifestyle, in real life, than Brian Jones. Um, By the end of the band, his mental state had deteriorated, his drug use had ramped up, um, he was being arrested multiple times for drug possession, um, for negligence on vehicles, um, just a bunch of things. And it's interesting to see where he got to that point, you know. One of the things that we forget uh, about musicians, especially about rock musicians because so much of rock music is tied up in legend, is that these are just real people making the music you know under everything they may be you know they may think about life and about things in a special way. That's how they come up with the music that they write but it's all humanity at the end of the day and Brian Jones was one of those people that, would have preferred to have been more reclusive than the lifestyle and the, the touring life of being in a band like the Rolling Stones would would have been for him. So it's one of those things where it ended up being supremely negative circumstances and um, things that happened to him that that sort of rubbed him the wrong way as far as his personality and his, uh, his aspirations and his outlook on life um, so where did Brian Jones grow up? Well born in London, obviously uh, childhood rebel not a lot of aspirations this guy, you know, was uh, a little bit of a troll maker in school uh, he was smart, but he was one of those kids that doesn't really agree with education, um and, it's, and, you know, back then, and even nowadays, you know, if, if you're not the type of person who is, enjoys taking tests or learning things in school, it doesn't tend well for your career, or for your future goals, but it doesn't mean you're not a smart person. Um, and he was. He was a musician that, that learned uh, how to play music early on. He learned how to love music early on. He got his, uh, a gift as a guitar when he was 17, Um, it's funny, researching Robert Johnson, you sort of see, you start to see parallels in that, uh, he had a girlfriend that he ended up getting pregnant, uh, he wanted her to get an abortion, she refused, and so they put the baby up for adoption, and shortly afterward, he dropped out of school out of disgrace, apparently. And Try to Life as a musician became sort of an aimless drifter. Not necessarily an itinerant player, but somebody who was sort of led along by this, this sort of nebulous goal to be a musician. There's a lot of people like that, especially back then. Um, and this was where he started meeting the, the, the members of what would eventually become the Rolling Stones. Uh, according to Jones, he considered himself back then to be the founder of the band. You know, the guy who who set everything up. He was the guy who came up with the name, apparently. Uh, they were calling gigs and um, magazines, and they asked what the name was, and they saw a Muddy Waters single uh, that said uh, The Rolling Stone Blues, I believe is what it was called. And so that's what he named the band after. He claimed himself to be the manager of the band and took a little bit of the bigger pay cut, which sort of rubbed uh, everyone else in the band the wrong way. Um... Because at that point, it was sort of demographic. They didn't exactly have a main manager. They just had somebody who's doing all their press work. Something we, we sort of take for granted nowadays, you know, or, or something that's normalized now that everything is sort of from the ground up. You can do everything um, at the base level. You don't necessarily need a manager. Back then, it was super, uh, super necessary. Especially if you wanted to contact press and contact gigs. And it was just, there was just so much work to it. Um, but... To put it into perspective, you've got a guy who hasn't done much in life, doesn't necessarily think terribly highly of himself, I have to imagine. Somebody who's already been through the ringer when it comes to fathership, or potential fathership, you know, who people have probably told in his life that he was a loser. Somebody who didn't really amount to much, and he found a calling by by practicing blues and by by researching blues musicians and and coming up with his own style because it was Brian Jones who helped Keith Richards and him start to form this guitar interplay that would be integral to because it was him and and Keith Richards they would learn how to interplay their guitars together and that sound would be integral to uh, the Sound of the Rolling Stones, how they became unique, how they sort of changed rock music from that moment forward. Um, You can't say he wasn't an innovative player. He he absolutely was, and especially even going forward after he started to distance himself from the rest of the band, he still um, managed to pull himself away from those blues stylings and experiment with more instruments, especially when you listen to their 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Um which is essentially an analog to Sgt. Pepper's. It's one of those things where they tried to uh, fool around with psychedelia and and, uh, outside influences and other genres that weren't necessarily blues, which was their cornerstone. But that will come later. In 1963, which was only a year after they were founded, and this was after they had gone on one UK tour, which was not terribly successful. They played a lot of dead-end clubs and... uh, they didn't have a ton of press and they mostly played covers. I have to imagine it was pretty enjoyable. It always sort of is if you're into it, if you're just with a gang of ragtag people just playing music and it was six members back then. If you're just with a ragtag gang of people playing music um, and you're playing music not necessarily for a lot of people but for people who are definitely appreciative of what you're doing, um, that's a fantastic... I, I have to imagine it was probably the best that Brian Jones had experienced. At least he found that he was doing something you know, that he had something that that he could take pride in and be like, this is my thing, I did this. But the band needed a manager, and there was a guy who used to manage for the Beatles, although manage is a little bit of a a strong word for the situation because he was 19 years old at the time. Uh, This guy's name is Andrew Logue Oldham. And he, we've mentioned this guy before. He, When we did the Mary Unfaithful podcast, uh, he was uh, critical for getting her signed and, and starting her on her way. Um, so besides the fact that he was underage, he had to have uh, th- papers co-signed whenever he wanted to do anything within the business. Um, he had to get his mother to fund and stuff like that. Nefarious person, a douchebag, but... As far as history would have it, he was a brilliant manager. He thought about things in a way that were just smart and led to a lot of really lucrative business opportunities when it came to those bands. Um, He was the guy who caused the shift in the Stones' image and their artistic direction to be darker and to be gamier than the Beatles, because what he saw, and he had worked with the Beatles before, what he saw was a gang that had an image, had a sound that was very popular for the populace, but saw that there was a niche that they were not covering. Um, An image that people who appreciated a seedier lifestyle, or sort of led a seedier lifestyle, these were the kinds of people that were sort of turned off by the image of the Beatles, which were squeaky clean, like mop-top people. Um, You know, they didn't necessarily lead their lives in ways that represented a specific type of person, if you know what I mean, especially back then. Um, And so it was his idea, if you see early images of the Rolling Stones, especially on their first record, um, you'll see them all in suits, all looking kind of dapper, um, in order, they were frowning on their first uh, record and uh, that was to sort of indicate that they were, you know, not as clean cut and uh, and optimistic maybe as the Beatles image were. But then you see them in press photos as soon as Oldham becomes their manager and they start to look more spread out, more uneven. They're wearing stylish clothes, darker clothes, jackets, jeans. You know, they look like ruffians. And it was a brilliant turn of phase because that was essentially why they ended up getting more and more popular because then there was a, a separation, almost a rivalry, if you will. Um, not that there maybe was an explicit rivalry because one of the Stones' biggest singles uh, back when they were just starting out in that year was I Want to Be Your Man, which is actually a song that Lennon and McCartney wrote and then gifted to the Stones. They loved to do that. They loved to, to write songs and then gift the copyrights to their friends. Uh, Super magnanimous of them. Um, so we have this new manager. He's doing a lot of things: setting up tours, setting up images. Um, critically, he's the guy who wanted to build a Lennon-McCartney-like pair uh, partnership with Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, who he believed were the most uh, charismatic, most front and center people of the band—the people that would want to f- that people would want to focus on. He wanted that relationship. Uh, between those two. So he sort of paired them together. Allegedly, he would just lock them in a room until they came up with songs. You know, kind of cruel, but it was effective because they did come up with a lot of awesome songs uh, at that time, especially when we get up to albums like Beggar's Banquet, even those before then. Um, Naturally, this caused Brian Jones to feel estranged. And, And you would be too, you know? If you had this thing that you were really proud of that you considered yourself to be like the, not necessarily the front man, but the leader of somebody who was like, this is your band. And then somebody comes in and says, well, no, you guys are doing this all wrong. You, know, you could be receiving much more success doing it this way. And then you're pushing it against him, but you don't really feel like you can necessarily do anything about it because he is the manager and your success is on the line it would make you feel not confident in yourself and in your abilities as a, as a leader, you know? And ne- necessarily as, not necessarily as a musician, because he did start to experiment further and further with other instruments. And, and even though blues was his forte, he was open-minded about the music. He just started to feel like he was no longer in control of this project. And uh, he started to pull further and further away from the band members. And this was noticeable as early as their next tour with Oldham. Because according to Oldham, of course, and you know, you can take his word as it is with a grain of salt, but Oldham would claim that whenever they would tour, Jones would always book hotels and rooms completely separated from the band. Like he would just do his own thing. Um, It may have been a Mark as an introvert. It literally may have been because he was struggling to sort of rub up against this new direction and... And generally, as it turns out, against the life of a touring band like the Rolling Stones, because part of their success was that they played all over the place, and they played constantly. And the rigors were incredible. And it was something that Brian couldn't really keep up with. So, you know, as we started to see, he turned to drugs, harder and harder drugs to sort of cope with the touring lifestyle. And unlike Mick Jagger, unlike Keith Richards, pretty much unlike anybody else in the band it was something that he just wasn't prepared for and something that he wasn't mentally able to handle. He started doing pot. He started doing uh, harder drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, um, acid. It was the summer of love. You know, it makes a lot of sense, but gradually his mental state started to get lower and lower. He started to feel more and more worthless from the day. He was exhausted from the constant touring He was exhausted by the new lifestyle. Um, The fact that he was in photos all the time, you know, the fact that he was doing interviews, that his music was starting to become more and more well-known. That particular lifestyle, and we take it for granted because a lot of people, especially if they're artists, always sort of dream of having that kind of fame, having that kind of success. And when it finally happens sometimes you just don't really take into effect what it will do to you, you know. A lot of people consider it to be paranoia. Uh, And the rock star lifestyle is what caused that because being under the public eye, especially when rock journalism was starting to take off and, uh, and people were getting reported on all the time, magazines like Rolling Stone were starting to get more and more popular and people were starting to read about it. You're always under the public eye, and drug use is just sort of commonplace to, to sort of forget about it and be yourself. Um, so the drugs may have definitely exacerbated his mood strings, his mood swings, and strained his relationships because many members of the band, including Bill Wyman, who was hired later in the band's life—not much later, but definitely after the band was founded—there's this lovely book that he wrote um, that he does all of these interviews and and a lot of information that we know from back then is sort of from him, uh, from his personal accounts. And he was the kind of guy who described Brian definitely after he started taking harder drugs. He described Brian as somebody who would be very pleasant, very outgoing at one moment, and then very shortly after, he would just sort of want to get a rise out of people. Like a person who, according to Wyman, would strain pretty much every relationship he would have uh, up until his untimely death in 69. So he just, he sort of played the part of the difficult artist. Um, Somebody who may have been misunderstood, but wasn't necessarily very nice about it. Um, And that's a shame, but it's how it is. Uh, Now, back then, uh, he had a girlfriend. Her name was Anita Pollenberg she would become well-known as a being a muse of the Stones. And the reason why that is the case is he was with her for about a year or two. One day they were touring in Morocco in, 90, in uh, 67, 68, I forget which year. Um, and he was violent towards her, uh, which is extremely unfortunate. And Keith Richards saw what had happened and came to her side. And Pollenberg started to fall for Richards and vice versa. There was a situation where Brian Jones found himself hospitalized um, while he was in Morocco. And Richards ended up sleeping with Pollenberg, and then they got together, and then they started to form this relationship outside of uh, Brian. So that sucked for him. The fact fact that all of a sudden he had lost uh, his love to a whole other person, a, a person he considered to be his friend. Um, it should be noted, too, that across his life he fathered six different children with six different women. So, that's enough to take a little bit of a mental s- toll on him as well. You know? And that's just a lifestyle. It's, it sucks, you know? But So he started to contribute less and less to the Rolling Stones material. His mental state was degrading. Um, and by contributing less and less, we're talking about Sometimes the band members would literally shut off his amp because he just wasn't doing anything for the song. Um, I'm not sure if Brian Jones noticed or whether or not he just sort of did and put up with it. But, you know, bands themselves are often very dysfunctional, have a hard time with communication. And it's one of those things when, when you see someone declining like that and you know that it's becoming a problem for you, you sort of have to just do what you can with it. In music, it's hard to talk to people when it comes to that. Um, And it was problematic for the rest of the band, but it really started to become problematic for the band as a whole, as an entity, as an enterprise, when Brian Jones was arrested for the second time on cannabis possession, and this made it extremely hard for him to get a U.S. visa, which means, which meant that he couldn't tour with them. And uh, that was the bread and butter of how the Rolling Stones got fame and money, so... At that point, they sort of had to have a conversation with him. They brought Oldham, they brought the Stones, they brought Brian Jones into a room and they talked to him and they were like, listen, we can't do this anymore. We need you out of the place. We need you out of this band. You know, we're sorry. And, you know, he probably took it hard. But they did agree that he could say... He could disclose that information to the public however he wished, and that's what he chose to do. So the public learned that Brian Jones quit. He had resigned from the band when, in truth, he got kicked out of the band because of what he was doing at the time and how far he was slipping. Hard to recover from, but he tried. What happened was he moved to a farm in East Sussex, lived there for about a month, and it was only for a month after the stones kicked him out of the band that he was still alive. and (coughs) The ironic thing about his final few days uh, while he was alive was that many people who knew him back then assumed he was in very good spirits. You know, he... He lived away from people on this farm. He had plans to develop another band. Um, and it's one of those things where once you break out of your circumstances and there's all that potential, that's really where you can derive happiness from because happiness is something to, was when you're always looking forward to something. Happiness would elude him, however... Uh, in early May in 1969 when his girlfriend at the time discovered him uh, at the bottom of his pool uh, at midnight. She freaked out. She pulled him out of the pool. She assumed she was still alive, called the paramedics, and he was dead on arrival. And that is how he died. The, The actual death certificate says death by misadventure. And the reason why the coroner came to this conclusion was because Uh, His heart and his liver were both uh, enlarged, um, possibly due to his drug use, most likely due to his drug use, you know. And for a second, and everyone sort of assumed it was the case, uh, it made a lot of sense. Jones was an unhealthy man. It's possible he may have just passed out or, or... was on something that caused him to asphyxiate, or it's possible he may have just passed out or had an aneurysm in his pool and drowned. And for a second, that seems to be... that seemed to be the the end of the story, is that Brian Jones was just... he lived the life of debauchery, he crashed his motorcycle into a couple of buildings, he took a lot of drugs. Um, He was the embodiment of what the Rolling Stones music was purportedly about. Um, And so... To a lot of people, it felt like poetic justice, a tragedy, perhaps, but it wasn't necessarily surprising that that was the case. And I think it did did sort of grasp a lot of people that way. Now, where the story gets complicated is that there is a... not necessarily a rumor, a mythos, a conspiracy, I guess we'll call it, that Brian Jones did not die from misadventure. He didn't just die of his own accord. People believe that he was murdered. And this is from several associates of the Stones, people who have uh, claimed their own claims without definitive evidence um, all the way from his death till today, technically. Um, There was a man named Terry Rawlings who uh, put out a book in 1993 that attempted to successfully identify the murder of Brian Jones as the last person who happened to see Jones alive, which was Frank Thorogood, a man who was doing construction work on his property. Uh, according to Rawlings, Thorogood confessed the murder to the Rolling Stones' driver, Tom Keylock, and Tom later denied this. So it seems to be one of those things where there was enough tangential evidence... Um, correlating evidence with a couple of murders um, later after his death that seemed to line up and provide the strongest argument that he was murdered. Um, But for a lot of time, it didn't seem as though there was much else to it, and Death by Misadventure seemed to stick. But Rawlings did an interview with Mojo in 2015 where he updated the book that he wrote. And the book is called Brian Jones, Who Killed Christopher Robin? It's an interesting read. Um... He attempted to link Joan's death to the attempted murder three weeks later of Joan Joan Fitzsimmons, who was an alleged witness to the crime. And also, he claims that Tom Keylock, who was the driver that Frank Thurgood confessed the murder to, orchestrated this huge cover-up that apparently made it seem... He's the guy who instructed the coroner to to say death by misadventure. Um, And, I mean, it's a bold claim. Uh, And it would be interesting to know, but I guess the, the long and short of it is that we're actually never going to know what happened to Brian Jones and really I don't know if it matters um, I can't really understand what the impetus of murdering a essentially neutered um, once leader to this enormous band could possibly be other than just to get your rocks off um, no pun intended but I mean, who knows? The long and the short of it is that for somebody like Brian Jones, somebody who participated in the music of a band that has been long known for the essence of debauchery and rock and roll, to die in a way that seemed very representative of the music that they were making and and the the vices that they extolled uh, was poetic. And it sucks because he was a human. But the thing about death is that because you're not really human anymore, you can become an idea, and people can can look at you and and pro- project all of these ideas and and link things in a way that sort of, in a weird fucked up way, adds to the art of it all. You know, the analysis, the the linking together of concepts. Uh, is it dehumanizing? Yes, but rock music and 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 the music industry is dehumanizing so what can you do anyway thank you so much for listening to the podcast uh i hope it was educational and it wasn't too boring uh next week we're going to continue we are going to go into a frank discussion of the next chronologically born member of the 27 club the legendary and these are all legendary technically but the uh the guy who sort of helped found guitar modern guitar technique and uh an amazing auteur in his own work, Jimi Hendrix. Um, We'll go into uh, his legacy, his life, and uh, how his death was more of a freak accident than anything else. Um, So stay tuned for that. I'm going to talk to you guys next Friday. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Tape Deck Podcast Extended Play. I'm Rob Mora. Have a good day.